listening to the AT Tapes, a podcast from the Journal of Athletic Training. The goal of this podcast is to interview researchers and clinicians on current topics facing athletic trainers and discuss how we can utilize best practices to improve patient outcomes. My name is Lizzie Hibbard, and I am your host for this podcast. I'm a faculty member in the athletic training program at the University of Alabama, and I have a research interest in shoulder and elbow injury prevention in youth overhead athletes. You can follow me on Twitter at EE Hibbard. We are currently recording this podcast during an unprecedented time with athletics canceled and non-essential businesses closed. We know that many people are struggling financially or emotionally during this time. We also recognize that many ATs are now frontline workers. We hope that you are all taking care of yourself in whatever way you need. Because of shelter-in-place restrictions, we are recording from our homes. If there is any change in the quality of the audio, it is due to this, and once we are able to return to work, the audio quality will be back to normal. Like everyone else, we are doing the best we can with the situation at hand. Before getting started on today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that all content from JAT is open access, meaning it is free of charge to all readers thanks to funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. In today's episode, we have Dr. Lindsay Lepley from the University of Michigan joining us to discuss bench science in athletic training and sports medicine research, and then to specifically discuss her article, Morphology and Anabolic Response of Skeletal Muscles Subjected to Eccentrically or Concentrically Biased Exercise, published in this month's Journal of Athletic Training. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much. So before we get started with talking about your research, can you start out by telling us a little bit about your educational background and how you sort of got to this point in your career? Yeah, of course. Uh, So I sort of had more of a traditional uh, AT research experience during my PhD work, where I mostly worked with uh, humans, and we were taking a look at some different types of therapy that promoted muscle health after ACL reconstruction. Uh, Some of the data led me to believe that there was more to some of the outcomes that we were finding. So I took more of I, I adopted more of a basic approach. Um, and studied at the University of Kentucky uh, with Tim Butterfield for a postdoc, where um, I started doing some things in some animal models to get sort of more of an in-depth understanding of the mechanisms that are governing muscle loss and muscle growth so that I I could reapply um, that type of science back into the clinic. So you talked about in your PhD doing a more traditional athletic training uh, research agenda. So can you tell us a little bit about why you became an athletic trainer and sort of your experience as a clinical or a clinical athletic trainer before your research career? Yeah, so I was really, when I was an undergrad, grappling between uh, nursing and uh, athletic training, knowing that I wanted to be involved in the healthcare field. Uh, I had a, a mentor at the time that asked me, you know, would I rather be stuck in a hospital or, or stuck outside, you know, being able to, you know, sort of still be part of a team. And that sort of really resonated with me. So that's how I gravitated to um, sort of the field. Uh, I really enjoyed, like, once I got my feet wet, uh, the rehabilitation part of um, sort of the typical day-to-day task. So that's sort of what's driven um, my career now is shaping sort of rehabilitation, because that was the part of clinical care that I enjoyed the most. And then if you can also talk a little bit about some of the highlights of your professional career um, and your accomplishments thus far. Oh, boy. Well, uh, I don't think my professional career has been uh, too horribly long, but I think uh, 
I don't know, the highlights for me have really been, you know, d- developing relationships with, with mentors and watching some of my trainees go off and um, have their own careers and start their own careers. Uh, in terms of like scientific product, I, the, the lab has a, a, a K01 award and that's been uh, game changing for us. So that's award um, given by, to the NA given by the NIH to independent investigators that are sort of on the brink of developing new skill sets. Um, And that's really given our lab protected time to really dive into some of this more basic approach and adopt different types of methodologies to look at different, um, different ways at looking at joint health and muscle health after traumatic joint injury. So that's been, that's been a highlight. Um, Well, thanks for giving us a little bit of an overview about yourself. I know it's kind of hard to brag about yourself sometimes, but you have had lots of accomplishments um, and made a lot of contributions to athletic training research. So before we get started on the discussion of your article um, in this month's JAT, I want to learn a little bit more about your research area. So can you sort of give us a summary of your research area and the types of studies that you conduct? Yeah, of course. We're, uh, we sort of adopt these new main uh, themes when we're developing work. Uh, one is sort of to better understand the neuromuscular cascade of events that happen after traumatic joint injury. Uh, so studying things from a neural perspective, from a morphological perspective, and then the intermixing of those two disciplines. The second is, is using the information that we derive from that first line, as well as what other labs are producing to, to refine and, and think about how do new interventions necessarily sort of target those factors that fall out. Um, we're particularly interested in optimizing neuromuscular health because that's what athletic trainers are really primed to do. Uh, and it stands to have far reaching benefits. So there's few things that if you just fix sort of one or two components that can dramatically change outcomes for patients and changing neuromuscular health, you know, has these positive far reaching effects. So that's why we focus most of our work in that area, either identifying what's what's gone wrong, and then to trying different types of interventions to, to fix it. So can you tell us a little bit about your research lab and what equipment you use regularly to conduct your research? So my group has two different types of labs. Uh, We have more of a traditional uh, human-based approach where we have a um, full-fledged motion capture lab that's integrated with um, uh, things to collect neural activity uh, and also different types of technologies to take a look at muscle health uh, while somebody's in the lab. And then we also commonly, um, you know, use uh, different types of imaging um, with collaborators that get a sort of more in-depth look at what's going on either at the brain or the muscle. Uh, the other lab that we hold is a rodent lab. So essentially all the equipment that you would typically find in a human lab, we've retrofitted, um, sometimes we use the word MacGyvered, and uh, make made it work at uh, the rodent level. So we have a motion capture lab for rodents. We instrument our rodents with um, the same type of technologies that you'd see in a typical biomechanics lab uh, to make similar observations. So a lot of times research studies that we find impactful as readers are ones that really give us a clear answer on how we change clinical practice. Um, But the basic research studies that are done are really the ones that are laying the foundation for a lot of future work and these clinical practice advancements. So can you talk in general about your view on the role of basic research in athletic training and sports medicine research, and particularly how these findings can be used to improve patient outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. I think what I commonly do when I give talks is I sort of want to 
laid the framework that just because we're talking about animal models doesn't mean that it's it should be this like automatic turnoff, especially when we talk about the musculoskeletal system. Um, physiologically, like 99% of what goes on in an animal in terms of muscle and joint health is is the same types of conditions and same types of responses that you would see in a human. So testing something in a mouse, rat, rabbit, uh, really translates well to observations that you can make in the clinic. Uh, so we try to set that as sort of a foundational, um, put down that as a foundational premise before we start giving these talks. Um, there's good rationale for uh, using animal models, right? A lot of conditions humans take quite a long time to develop. And uh, Mass studies are highly expensive, but you can bring in cohorts of animals where you can limit variability uh, and you can study them on a timeline where everything's accelerated. So you can sort of get a sneak peek of what you might see uh, if you use the same types of methodologies in a human population. So in your most recent JAT article, you were looking using these um, rat models to kind of evaluate the morphology and anabolic response of skeletal muscle to strengthening exercise. So can you tell us a little bit about the background of this project, um, kind of where the idea came from and then why uh, and what the purpose of this study was? Yeah, absolutely. So in some of our uh, clinical studies, we've made this observation that uh, eccentric exercise appears to be particularly beneficial uh, to long-term adaptations of muscle to folks that have had um, ACL injuries and undergone ACL reconstruction. Uh, but the mechanisms that are governing sort of the, the response of the muscle are, are unclear. Um, if you take a dive into the literature, what you generally see is if you pop the words eccentric and muscle into search engines like PubMed, is it comes up with the words like damaging and harmful. Uh, and there's not a lot of data to suggest that maybe in its acute stages, it's actually beneficial. And, and the rationale for this is eccentric exercise, lengthening exercise is a really good way to study muscle damage, right? If you pull a muscle beyond its optimal length, you're going to get damaged. Um, but the truth is, is that many of these basic bench top experiments have, have used techniques where they've like taken the tendon off the bone to study muscle lengthening, right? So muscle is being pulled, you know, somewhere upwards of like 60% beyond optimal length, which is like nothing that ever happens in the clinic, but it's been sort of misinterpreted, uh, misapplied. Uh, and so this dogma that, you know, lengthening exercise always leads to muscle damage is simply probably untrue. And we feel that uh, in order to sort of counter that belief, we need to put some basic evidence into the literature to show that, you know, an untrained muscle that's never seen eccentric exercise before, you know, there's a, there's a regulated response. And in fact, it might be helpful. So can you give us a little bit of a visual on how you impose concentric and eccentric loading on the rat? Yeah, so in animal work, there's there's different ways to quote unquote exercise your animals. Um, what we try to do is make it as clinically uh, translational as possible. So uh, we keep our animals awake; uh, their um, joints aren't disrupted at all. So you know, like it's the easiest thing to do in the world. There are rodent treadmills that we we buy and we use in the lab, and we just pick them up and put them on the treadmill. Um, they, uh, if we want them to exercise eccentrically, what we do is we have them run downhill on the treadmill. So what that does is it loads the quadriceps in a way in which it's lengthening. If we want them to exercise with like a concentric bias, 
we'll have them run uphill on the treadmill. So it's it's actually fairly simple to do. Um, you have to own a rodent treadmill in order to do it. Uh, but um, that's essentially how, how you can um, use an in vivo model uh, to exercise uh, a rat, a rodent, a mouse. Can you tell us a little bit about the markers of the physiological response that you chose and why these markers were utilized? Sure. So the intent of this article was to do uh, sort of two basic things, uh, to look and see if a single bout of eccentric exercise would be helpful to promoting a protein synthesis response, which, um, you know, eventually down the line should lead to muscle growth. And then the second thing was to see if a single dose of eccentric exercise uh, actually causes overt muscle damage. And so what we did was we chose uh, different types of markers to tell us about basic observations about whether or not those things happen. Um, in terms of muscle protein synthesis response, we went to uh, the mTOR pathway, which is sort of this hallmark pathway that people follow to see if the muscle would be um, experiencing a growing response versus an um, atrophy-like response. And we went to a downstream marker of the mTOR pathway. And what that means is, is that there's different levels of muscle markers. And if you look at something that's more superficial or higher up on the chain, it has the potential to go down a different pathway. And so what you try to do is pick markers that are further downstream to add confidence that if you see a response there, it's most likely going to lead to X observation. So what we chose was a marker um, P70 that's been associated with muscle growth in both animals and humans. So we looked at housekeeping levels of P70, so the resident level of P70 that um, these animals had. And then we looked at the phosphorylated level of P70, which means that the new protein that's been created in response to the exercise. So if you compare the phosphorylated to the housekeeping level, you know if the animal is experiencing um, a marker that would be symbolic of that the system's probably engaged in a protein synthesis response. Um, so that's how we looked at uh, whether or not we were experiencing muscle growth. In terms of uh, muscle damage, what we did is we used um, a, a, a histological technique that looks and sees whether or not uh, muscle cells have been damaged by permitting the influx of um, an immunoglobin that's essentially too large under normal conditions to get into your muscle fibers. So if you have uh, muscle fibers that's been lysed or damaged in some way, this, this um, IgG component uh, can basically leak in. Uh, and if you see it leaking into the muscle fibers, that's an indication to you that they, the uh, muscle fiber itself has been damaged. The article is linked to the podcast, so li listeners can review the results more thoroughly. But can you give us an overview of the findings of this research study? Yes, of course. So um, as I said, we had those two aims, uh, one to see if a single dose of eccentric versus concentric exercise would have this protein synthesis-like response. And then the second was to see if there was a associated muscle damage associated with it. Um, what we saw in terms of protein synthesis was that 24 hours after a single dose of eccentric exercise was that these rats had a robust protein synthesis response um, relative to rats that just experienced a, a comparable dose of concentric exercise. So that sort of reinforces this um, observation that mechanically tensioning the muscle probably helped promote protein synthesis in a unique and robust way compared to concentric exercise. The second thing that we observed was that um, we really didn't see any types of muscle damage. And we contribute this to, to two things. Uh, these rats only exercise for 15 minutes right? So we didn't overload their muscles with the intent to cause damage, which would be similar to what you would do with a patient, right? You 
progressively phase in exercise. And then the second thing was, is that these, their system was left physiologically intact, right? Meaning we didn't take the tendon off the bone and disrupt the system that should be helping to buffer sort of this mechanical tension that would be introduced with eccentric exercise. So by keeping the the animal physiologically intact and giving them, um, you know, a relatively uh, prescriptive dose of exercise without the intent to cause damage, we saw that it was at a beneficial uh, protein synthesis response with really no observation of muscle damage. And what are the implications of these results on human subjects? And can you make some recommendations for how this information could be used in clinical practice? So these are early data, but what I think they tell us are, you know, we know that when we prescribe eccentric exercise to our patients, that oftentimes um, it's a new type of exercise for them and they can experience um, delayed onset muscle soreness. But what our data is showing us is that perhaps this delayed onset muscle soreness is not um, is is not a hazardous thing, right? Not all types of inflammation are bad. Um, and exposing an untrained muscle to eccentric exercise doesn't appear to automatically cause a damaging response. In fact, it looks like it might cause a protein synthesis, a muscle growth response. Uh, so the recommendation um, in terms of clinical translation of this is don't be afraid, you know, to introduce eccentric exercise in low doses, you know, get patient response, you know, monitor how they're doing. But by all accounts, you know, in somebody that's physiologically intact, uh, introducing eccentrics doesn't appear to cause this vast amount of muscle damage um, that maybe the literature has indicated. So you indicated that these results were some early data. So I assume you're going to use these results as you drive your research agenda forward. So you, could you give us a little sneak peek into what's coming next? Yeah, of course. Uh, so the intent, so these are healthy animals. Um, our intent is to now see how does the muscle respond after a traumatic joint injury. So to extend these findings and start looking at um, animals that have been um, exposed to musculoskeletal injury, does do they respond similarly? Are there other systems that benefit? Uh, you know, one question for that um, piques the interest of our group is what's good for the muscle may not always be what's good for the joint. So um, studying the response of the bone and its health to eccentric exercise and muscle and seeing if, you know, how those, um, the crosstalk between those systems work. Those are some of the studies that um, we'll be getting to sort of nail down here in the next couple of years. As we finish up this episode, can you give us some uh, one to two take-home points on how either this research or overall basic research um, can be used to help improve patient outcomes? I would say is, you know, I know clinicians are, are pressed for time. Um, I've certainly experienced that in my career. I would say, you know, don't let it, an animal experiment be a turnoff, especially when you start looking at experiments that are, uh, that are focused on the musculoskeletal system, because the systems are very well conserved across species. They translate really well to what's going on um, in, in humans. So just because it's in a mouse or a rat doesn't necessarily mean just simply doesn't apply. There are some, you know, foundational lessons that you can take from this work that um, may help provide the basis for observations that you're making in clinic. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast today and taking a relatively complex topic and making it understandable for all of us. And thank you for the work that you're doing in the field of athletic training to help improve patient outcomes and patient care. Thanks so much. Have a good day. 
I hope you all found this podcast informative and that you can utilize the clinical recommendations to improve patient care. That's it for today's The AT Tapes. Stay healthy. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow the Journal of Athletic Training on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JAT underscore NATA on all three platforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us for next month's episode of the AT Tape.